0: Today's classic article is a 2015 review of Jones fractures, from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, written by Craig R. Laurel, M.D., and Robert B. Anderson, M.D. Proximal 5th metatarsal metaphyseal, often termed Jones, fractures are one of the most common forefoot injuries in the general population, and occur especially in athletes and patients with deformity resulting in disproportionate loading of the lateral aspect of the foot. Delayed union can occur because these injuries occur in an area with a tenuous retrograde blood supply. Additionally, the repetitive shear stresses endured by athletes both cause this injury and contribute to non-union and refractures. Because elite and competitive athletes experience an unacceptably high rate of complications, with non-operative treatment, primary fixation remains the standard of care in this population. In contrast, acute Jones fractures are typically treated initially in a non-weight-bearing cast in non-athletes. It is critical to identify and to address biomechanical, nutritional, and even behavioral factors that can both predispose patients to these injuries and impede a successful outcome fractures of the proximal fifth metatarsal are categorized most commonly on the basis of anatomic locations as tuberosity avulsions which is zone 1 jones fractures which are zone 2 or proximal diaphyseal stress fractures which are zone 3 so once again tuberosity avulsions is zone 1 jones fractures are zone 2 and proximal diaphyseal stress fractures are zone 3. A true Jones fracture is defined as a fracture of the proximal fifth metatarsal metaphysis without extension distal to the fourth fifth intermetatarsal articulation. Once again, a true Jones fracture is defined as a fracture of the proximal fifth metatarsal metaphysis without extension distal to the fourth fifth intermetatarsal articulation. Stress fractures can be distinguished from acute fractures by the presence of prodromal pain and cortical thickening or stress reactions on x-rays. Stress fractures of the 5th metatarsal have been categorized by TORG et al. Type 1 injuries refer to early stress fractures with periosteal reaction. Type 2 injuries have a widened fracture line and intramedullary sclerosis. And type 3 injuries are established non-unions with complete medullary canal obliteration. So once again, Torget all explains that type 1 injuries refer to early stress fractures with periosteal reaction, type 2 injuries have a widened fracture line in intramedullary sclerosis, and type 3 injuries are established non-unions with complete medullary canal obliteration. In regards to the mechanism of injury in pathophysiology, Acute Jones fractures are caused by a substantial indirect abduction force applied to the forefoot while the ankle is plantar flexed. So an abducted forefoot with a plantar flexed ankle. However, stress fractures of the proximal 5th metatarsal diaphysis are more commonly or most commonly associated with a sudden increase in high impact training like a marathon or someone in the military or a change in shoe wear. The metadiaphyseal region of the proximal 5th metatarsal is a watershed zone with a retrograde blood supply. A cadaveric study demonstrated that an osteotomy created in the proximal 40 mm or 4 cm of the 5th metatarsal violated the nutrient artery. Therefore, zone 2 and 3 fractures occurring within this region of the metatarsal have poor healing potential. Once again, a cadaveric study demonstrated that an osteotomy created in the proximal 4 centimeters of the 5th metatarsal violated the nutrient artery, and therefore zone 2 and 3 fractures occurring within this region of the metatarsal have poor healing potential. It is also important to note that multiple anatomic structures exist that place stress across the metadiaphyseal region of the 5th metatarsal. These include the peroneus brevis, the peroneus tertius, the lateral band of the planar aperneurosis, the tarsometatarsal ligaments, and the distal adductor. Once again, these include the peroneus brevis, the peroneus tertius, the lateral band of the planar aperneurosis, the tarsometatarsal ligaments, and the distal adductor. Patients with Joan fractures have point tenderness and swelling over the proximal fifth metatarsal. Standing hindfoot and forefoot alignment should be observed to look for hindfoot varus and cavus, or forefoot equinus. In patients with various hindfoot alignment, lateral ankle stability, and perineal strength should be assessed. Other than the proximal fifth metatarsal fracture, the differential diagnos- diagnosis in patients with tenderness in this area includes fourth or fifth tarsometatarsal joint sprain, cuboid fractures, insertional per- peroneus brevis tendinitis, and fracture of the osperineum. So once again, the differential diagnosis in patients with tenderness in this area includes 4th or 5th tarsometatarsal joint sprain, cuboid fracture, insertional peroneus brevis tendinitis, and fracture of the os perineum. In regards to imaging, weight-bearing 3-view, anterior, posterior, oblique, and lateral x-rays of the foot should be made when possible. In the case of persistent pain, without abnormality evident on radiography, a bone scan or MRI can be employed to look for stress reactions. MRI may be more expensive, but also may be helpful because of its ability to simultaneously evaluate surrounding soft tissue structures. A CT scan is generally reserved to test healing after a known Jones fracture, especially in cases treated with an intramedullary screw A CT scan more clearly delineates whether or not bridging trabeculation is present. All right, now into the good stuff. Treatment. In non-athletes, the initial treatment of acute Jones fractures traditionally involves a period of immobilization in a non-weight-bearing cast or boot. In the general population, 50% of these injuries fail to heal or refracture. The article that comes up with this 50% is by Quill, written in 95 in the Orthopedic Clinic, North America Journal. When treating elite and competitive athletes, non-operative treatment of Jones fractures is not an acceptable option, as the union rate was only 76 among 198 patients, and the refracture risk was 38% among 21 patients. In contrast, a recent meta-analysis demonstrated a 96% union rate in 157 Operatively Treated Patients, which is an article written by Roche in 2013. Other indications for operative treatment include fracture displacement exceeding 2 to 3 millimeters, presence of abnormal sclerosis at the fracture site on radiographs torque type 2 and type 3, and failure to progress toward healing after at least 3 months. So once again, other indications for operative treatment include fracture displacement exceeding 2 to 3 millimeters, present of abnormal scler- sclerosis at the fracture site on radiographs, also known as TORG types 2 and type 3, and failure to progress toward healing after at least 3 months. One common operative treatment for acute Jones and stress fractures in athletes is an anti percutaneous intramedullary screw. Reports have demonstrated that this method may improve union rates, may expedite return to play, and may reduce fracture rates. Athletes with symptomatic non-union refracture or implant failure typically require a a revision procedure to achieve osseous union. In these cases, the recommended treatment is an open autogenous bone grafting with percutaneous screw fixation. A recurrent fracture that is non-displaced or minimally displaced can initially be treated with a bone stimulator and boot immobilization. If displaced, refracture site debridement is warranted, and adjunct procedures are dependent on the condition of the existing implant. If an appropriate screw is in place without evidence of fatigue or failure, percutaneous treatment can be undertaken with injection of a mixture of bone marrow aspirate and demineralized bone matrix or cancellous bone graft. For non-unions, extracorporeal shock wave therapy is an alternative to operative treatment that has been shown to have similar union rates and time to union in fewer complications. In addition to the treatment of the 5th metatarsal fracture, hindfoot varus, if present, should be corrected. The deformity is forefoot-driven and correctable. A 1st metatarsal dorsiflexion osteotomy is recommended. If the hindfoot deformity is rigid, a lateralizing calcaneal osteotomy should be considered. A recent level 3 NFL study demonstrated that players with proximal 5th metatarsal fractures had significantly more hindfoot varus than a control group without this injury. To maximize the chance of healing, nutritional and hormonal deficiencies must be identified and corrected. Vitamin D deficiency is defined as a 25-hydroxyvitamin D level of less than 20. One study of 723 patients showed that 43% of patients scheduled to undergo elective orthopedic procedures were vitamin D insufficient, with 40% of these being vitamin D deficient. Additionally, thyroid hormone abnormalities should be addressed. Although we do not routinely check vitamin D and thyroid hormone levels in all patients presenting with a Jones fracture, this workup is recommended in patients with a non-union refracture or a history of multiple fractures. Multiple studies exist describing different types of screws in the treatment of Jones fractures. However, the author prefers solid, partially threaded screws, typically 5.5 and 6.5 millimeters. Cannulated screws should not be used as they have lower fatigue strength than solid screws and are more likely to result in fracture and nonunion. Although less likely to cause soft tissue irritation, the author does not recommend headless screws because removal, if necessary, is more challenging. Now on to the surgical technique. A percutaneous incision 1.5 to 2 centimeters in length is made approximately 2 to 3 centimeters proximal to the base of the 5th metatarsal. Subcutaneous dissection is performed to expose the proximal 5th metatarsal. Care must be taken to protect the sural nerve and peroneus brevis tendon during exposure, drilling, and screw insertion. Once the position and angle of the guide pin are deemed satisfactory, the guide pin is advanced carefully into the shaft and across the fracture. The guide pin should advance freely as confirmed on multiple views without entering the medial cortex of the proximal shaft. With use of a soft tissue protector, A 3.2 or 3.5 millimeter cannulated drill is inserted over the guide wire through the proximal cortex, into the canal, and across the fracture site. Once the canal has been entered proximally, the guide wire and cannulated drill are exchanged for a solid drill, which should be advanced on reverse to ream the canal and to decrease the risk of cortical violation. Next, the guide wire is reinserted and a 4.5 millimeter cannulated tap is introduced. The size of the tap can be increased in one millimeter increments until sufficient torque is achieved. In the author's experience, although the anatomy of most athletes can accommodate a 5.5 mm screw, a 6.5 mm screw is usually necessary to adequately stabilize the fracture. After the screw diameter has been established, the screw length is determined by measuring a screw radiographically alongside the metatarsal. The ideal screw length is such that all threads are just distal to the fracture site. Once again, the ideal screw length is such that all threads are just distal to the fracture site. Because the metatarsal is curved, a screw that extends beyond the midshaft may result in distraction of the fracture, particularly at the lateral cortex, leading to varus angulation. Screw length is usually between 40 and 55 millimeters. The guide wire is removed and the solid screw is inserted. The screw should have excellent purchase and sufficient torque occurs when the lateral aspect of the foot appears to rotate with the screwdriver. Wound closure is performed with interrupted 3-0 nylon suture alone and a well-padded splint is applied. Now in regards to refractures and non-unions after operative fixation. In patients with non-union and those requiring a revision procedure, retained implants must be exchanged for a new intramedullary screw, and biologic augmentation should be added. The ipsilateral iliac crest should also be prepped and draped. The previous incision on the foot is typically adequate for screw removal and insertion. The operative approach to the base of the fifth metatarsal is identical to that previously described for the index procedure. A more extensile incision is necessary for removal of the plate screw construct. In the event of a broken screw, the proximal portion can be removed in standard fashion and the distal portion must be removed through the non-union or refracture site with the screw removal set. So once again, in the event of a broken screw, the distal portion must be removed through the non-union or refracture site with the screw removal set. After implant removal, the fracture or nonunion site is identified fluoroscopically, with use of a radiopaque instrument. A one to two centimeter incision is made over this location for open debridement and bone grafting. The incision length varies depending on the bone graft material used. For demineralized bone matrix mixed with bone marrow aspirate, the incision is shorter, about one, typically less than one centimeter compared with that used for cancellous autograft. The sural nerve must be protected throughout the procedure. In revision cases with scar formation, it may need to be mobilized for safe, tension-free retraction. The fracture is exposed by elevating the periosteum dorsally and plantarly. Debridement is achieved with a curette and a small diameter Kirschner wire or drill. For refracture and implant failure, the same technique is used for screw selection and insertion. In the case of non-union with canal sclerosis, a 3.2mm drill bit is slowly advanced across the fracture site, alternating between the forward and reverse modes, ensuring that the cortical bone is not violated. The inserted, partially threaded screw should have all threads immediately distal to the fracture site. However, if a cortical window was required for for screw removal, a longer screw is required for stabilization. Once again, the inserted partially threaded screw should have all threads immediately distal to the fracture site. However, if a cortical window was required for screw removal, a longer screw is required for stabilization. This is the only case in which sufficient screw length trumps screw diameter, as the curve of the metatarsal may not accommodate a larger diameter screw. Prior to screw insertion, bone graft is harvested and inserted. If cancellous autogenous bone graft is desired, the author favors harvest from the the ipsilateral iliac crest, which has a high number of osteoblast progenitor cells. Additionally, they they prefer to avoid bone graft harvest from the weight-bearing bones of the lower extremity to avoid creating a stress riser, particularly in elite athletes. The author typically harvests cancellous autograft with use of an 8mm power trephine via a minimally invasive technique. The graft is then placed in the canal adjacent to the fracture and is used to fill any defects at the fracture site. Alternatively, bone marrow aspirate from the iliac crest combined with demineralized bone matrix can be used in place of a cancellous autograft where there is minimal bone defect following debridement. Bone marrow aspirate and demineralized bone matrix can be injected into the subperiosteal space at the fracture site and into the medullary canal on both sides of the fracture. Once grafting is satisfactory, the desired solid screw is advanced under fluoroscopy. So now in regards to postoperative protocol and return to play after the acute fracture. The author adheres to an aggressive rehabilitation protocol for elite athletes. Postoperatively, patients are kept non-weight-bearing for two weeks to allow healing of the skin incision. Following suture removal, patients can begin weight-bearing in a short walker boot. A bone stimulator can be used to expedite healing. Once the fracture site is minimally tender, the x-rays demonstrate bridging trabeculation, and the patient is able to bear weight without pain, he or she can transition to a running shoe and can begin a running progression protocol followed by sport-specific integration. After the revision procedures, advancement of weight-bearing is more conservative in the revision setting. Patients typically remain non-weight-bearing in a cast or splint for four weeks, followed by the initiation of weight-bearing in a short walker boot. A longer period of non-weight bearing, 6-8 to weeks, is advised if a trough had to be created for screw removal. Once there is clinical and radiographic evidence of healing, patients are transitioned into running sneakers with a custom orthosis. If there is any question regarding adequate healing, a CT scan should be obtained. This is particularly beneficial in athletes in mid-season when time is of the essence. Once complete, radiographic healing is visualized, running can be initiated on an anti-gravity treadmill or in a pool. Assuming that they remain pain-free, athletes can then progress gradually to sprinting, jumping, cutting, and position-specific drills. This ends the 2015 Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery Review of Jones Fractures, written by Craig R. Laurel, M.D., and Robert B. Anderson, M.D.